you are listening to the Therefore Geek Podcast, episode 68. everybody and welcome to therefore a geek i'm tracy and i'm a big fucker and i'm tough to kill <laughs> that's from game of thrones really i know it was, the, it was the only thing i could think of it's it's never his actual name guys no. <laughs> um and today we are talking about censorship which is a topic near and dear to dude's heart so i'm going to actually let him uh, anchor this one and and take it away so i I, I have some fairly strong feelings about censorship as well, as you guys know may know. But censorship within the geek community is, is slightly different because, well, for one thing, we have a very different setup. So in our world, so many times the good guys and the bad guys are not uh, divided by things such as gender, but more motivation so in many cases, censorship actually stems from not just violence and not just overt sex, those kinds of things. So censorship on those fronts, I think personally, is fading a little bit. But it's more in this third wave feminism and this this new, strangely prudish liberalism that it, it's more, it seems to be more divided along gender lines. But for us geeks, in many cases, our women, our female heroes are as strong or stronger than our male heroes. So in that case, sometimes the censorship, I think, is poorly placed. So, uh, dude, what are your feelings just generally on the geek community and how censorship has affected it? Well, so this, this dovetails from our podcast a couple weeks ago or a month ago where we just talked free expression in general. But the direct attack on free expression usually comes in the form of censorship. So so really, what is it? So censorship is the idea that you are preventing an image or an idea or something like that from being discussed or seen. And there's all sorts of different variations on it, and the distinctions have to be made, and I think they're important to make. So there's, like, government censorship. That's when a bureaucrat or a politician or a government body says that something cannot be seen or heard because it can lead to some kind of harm. And then there is the censorship from the mob or the the masses, the community. And that's a different form altogether because oftentimes people get this, the First Amendment free speech and censorship all kind of meshed together. It's one big mesh. And they're actually distinctly different. The First Amendment is a governmental protection or the rights, protecting the rights of people against the government. Free expression and free speech is kind of a bigger philosophical collection of how you should comport yourself in an open society. And then censorship can either be uh, controlling images from the top down or from the bottom up. And you alluded to it in the introduction. A lot of the censorship we're seeing, I would contend, is coming from the bottom can you break that argument down a little bit more? Tell me what you mean by from the top down or the bottom up. So the top down basically is a bureaucrat or a politician or some sort of agency that has, you know, is in place because that's the government structure we have. So a good example would be in the 1980s when there was a push for labeling of music and censoring of music because Tipper Gore's kids were hearing Prince's, you know, the, the recently late Prince, uh, Purple Rain or whatever it was, and it was uh, 
songs about sex in this case, or songs about violence. And it Aren't was the all idea. songs about sex in the end? Pretty much, yes. I mean, in the end, it's... it's uh, Frank Zappa has a great interview on Crossfire from the 80s when he was explaining to the interviewers, it's like, I really hate to break it to you, but 95% of the songs that are ever written are about love. And so that is basically where you had people, Tipper Gore, and her husband at the time was a senator from Tennessee, on the Senate floor talking about, is this appropriate? Can, is there something the government can do about it? And this went on for years. This is not new. This, you know, unfortunately, Andrew's not here with us, but he could talk all about the comic book uh, moral panic in the 50s. The Yeah, the, the comics code. And mm-hmm. uh, and there are, and I'll throw those in the show notes, but there are, we have a couple of links to blog posts that Andrew has written uh, detailing the, the people behind it, what happened, chronological series of events. And it's a fascinating story. So that will be yeah. in the show notes as well. So to me, those are all examples of top-down. Basically, bureaucrats, government officials, oligarchs, whatever kind of name you want to use for them. By contrast, the bottom up, that is basically the masses. This can come in, 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 this is where it gets a lot more murky and a lot more muddled because then you kind of add the market into this. So, and, and how you define censorship gets really, really murky because you could say, well, Marvel's editors, they decided not to go with this artist over this artist or that panel over that panel and this line of dialogue over that line of dialogue or so on and so forth. Isn't that censorship? And in a sense, depending how broad you make that discussion, yes, it is. However, they are a private group freely associating amongst themselves and the artists who work for them and the writers who work for them and the editors and publishers that work for them all kind of buy into the idea that someone does have final say within the context of their little world. On the other end, you've got the fans, which is kind of a new phenomenon where they're seeing things that they don't like and then making this push to make it go away. I think that's where my main objection comes in. This is something I see as generally pernicious, where the fans jump in and say, X, Y, and Z are bad for these reasons. We need to stop them. So we're going to create a cyber mob or whatever you want and get that to be pulled. So I, I think those are the distinctions that we have to understand moving into it. Well, so I'm just going to hit on that point a little bit because my question for you is more one of opinion at this point, And that is... Okay. Is there a difference between voting with your wallet? Okay, I don't think that it's appropriate... And for some people, it's a legitimate fear. I don't think it's appropriate for my eight-year-old son to be purchasing a Red Sonia comic because it's a little too revealing. I don't want him to be thinking those thoughts yet. I don't want him asking me awkward questions quite yet. I don't think he's mature enough to handle the subject matter or whatever. Versus saying, I read comics or I don't read comics in some cases, and I'm going to scream at the creative team or the publishing house or the movie you know company whoever fox uh, 20th century fox or um any of them and until this is no longer even made so no one gets to choose to it it, no one gets the choice is there a difference so in my opinion i think there's a very big difference and i think that needs to be stretched out uh, or and, and understood is if an item has been published, let's say a comic book, and it has a cover or content in it that has gone through a creative process of writers have written it, artists have drawn it, editors have looked it over, the publisher has published it, the chief, the editor-in-chief has said, yes, this is our brand, and you put it out there. And now the masses get to choose whether or not they like it. Now, as speaking as someone who just has really, really niche tastes in comics, you know, I understand that not everything is for everyone. And we can go through the list of comic books that I have that people are not going to be into. And that's fine because there's very few of them. They don't publish a lot of them. And you can see that content is not ubiquitous in the market. So I think that's the best way to do it is allow people to vote with their wallets and allow the marketplace of creativity and ideas and money. It's just part of the equation to determine that. The big difference is when someone has an opinion on art and says, oh, 
this is bad, all the things you laid out, this is really bad, and I'm going to make sure no one ever sees it at all. And then I will be on the watch, and we will create Twitter mobs or Tumblr or whatever you want to call them, and jump out there and prevent this from ever coming out. I think that that's a those two are in my mind. There's a clear dividing line between them, and I think the latter is far more pernicious than the former. Okay, that's that's fair. What do you see as the danger to? censorship and and we'll go we i promise we will dovetail this conversation into some specific examples and then we'll talk about those but for now i I really want to know what you see as the danger in censoring comics in a way other than with your own money so i think the main problem with this kind of censorship and there's a guy named fleming rose who just won an award he was the guy who published the Danish cartoons in 2005 uh, that created that kind of craziness back then uh, of people saying, oh, can we can we depict the Prophet Muhammad? He was the guy who uh, was the editor-in-chief of that uh, newspaper, and he just won the war. He has a book out called The Tyranny of Silence. And the reason why that kind of behavior, that kind of censorious behavior is so pernicious is it does have a silencing effect on opinions and art and creativity that I think it's much more beneficial to allow that to happen, that we can check out your art or your ideas or your books or your movies, and we can all look at them and discuss them and decide what works and what doesn't, what works for the most amount of people, what works for the least amount of people. Because again, like I said, I have really niche tastes. So I understand that the comic books I'm into aren't printed in large quantities and, you know, aren't going to have wall-to-wall people in the panel. No, certainly not. But what I have a problem with is with someone saying, well, you know what, the decision has been made, and we have decided that those are no longer value, have no value, no worth, and you don't get to enjoy them. So I have a really big problem with someone telling me what I can and cannot enjoy, and for whatever strange reasons they come up with, be it uh, it causes harm or it makes things awkward for children or it makes people misogynist or it makes people violent or whatever the kind of really catastrophizing reasons people come up with. Not to mention none of this has been borne out in any kind of science. It usually just exists in hypotheticals. I think that's really pernicious when you tell people what they can and can't see because you think you have the final say. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree uh, but how, what, what's your answer to the, and what do you see as the difference between the moral mob of the 80s and 90s, which was primarily the Christian right, mm-hmm. and the current oddly, again, oddly prudish liberal group that is on Tumblr and they're, they're very tolerant and very accepting except when they're not. What, what's the yeah. difference? Or is there a difference? You know, I don't know if there really is a difference in this case, it's so strange, and and not to get too far off the topic, but prudish and Victorian are really great ways to describe them, and you're and we're not the only ones to do that. Uh, there are two two of my favorite feminist writers, Christina Hoff Summers and and uh, Camille Paglia, refer to them as fainting couch feminists in in this particular, <laughs> where it's just they see these these images of 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 you know what is it. Let's just go into a couple of details um, or examples. Mystique being choked on a billboard or uh, Spider-Woman in body paint or Batgirl being tied up by the Joker. And, oh, my God, this is so awful. And they have to pass out and they have to all these things have to happen for them because it's so difficult. They're triggered and they need to lay down with smelling salts and play with Play-Doh and listen to soft music and play and have puppies near them. I don't it's it's so strange to me. Yet, like you pointed out, in the 80s and early 90s, we had Jack Thompson, who was a anti-video game crusader, saying that video games cause violence and, and piggybacked on tragedies like Columbine uh, High School Massacre to, to try and prove his point. And now, several years later, starting in 2012 and up to today, you've got 
you know, a YouTube feminist named Anita Sarkeesian who spent, who just, I think, had a new video come out a couple days ago uh, as we're recording this about sexism in video games and making similar claims that these things cause harm and they're bad. The difference is, there is actually a key difference that I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, is that the Christian right of the 80s and 90s were far more explicit. And even the speech code, because there was a left censorship in the 80s and 90s on college campuses, the kind of sure. speech codes that if you read Kindly Inquisitors or the Shadow University or Illiberal Education, these books on those topics, the First Amendment was directly assaulted in, in very philosophical and legal terms, that it, it goes too far and we don't need it anymore. Guys like Eric Posner and Stanley Fish, Stanley Fish wrote a book called There's No Such Thing as Free Speech and Thank Goodness or something to that effect. That kind of direct attack is gone. So the difference is the modern... And we have all sorts of names yeah, for but them. I wouldn't say that it's gone, though. There, well, have let me, been, let... there have been people actually on campuses asking students directly. And, and it's not just on campuses, but that's the easiest way to get a large number of people that will actually talk to you. But sure. that have specifically asked, do you think the First Amendment goes too far? Do we need it? Do we not? And there are people that say we do not. This is the right. next voting yes. generation telling no. us, no, I don't think we need freedom of speech because some people do need to be censored. Yeah, and... and... I should dig it up because there's a Reason TV video they put out where they go on, on college campuses. And there's a whole bunch of other YouTube videos of them going on, other people going on college campuses. And the museum has a poll out about the First Amendment because they have the First Amendment Institute. And they have shown that amongst our generation, that, that kind of 18 to 34-year-old generation, mm -hmm. uh, approval for the First Amendment is, is at its lowest amongst all age demographics it's really a uh, uh frightening. which is insane because you right. expect it to be in the high in the higher um the higher age ranges the people that are much more conservative because it's it's true you become more and more conservative as you age that's a given so you would expect right. it would be in those higher age brackets that you know people would be more into censorship and you know young people these days they want to you know wanting to limit music limit comic books limit video games whatever right. what any kind of well, media but it's it, not and it's not and here's the i think it should be pointed out uh, before we get too too far off topic that the older generation like the baby boomers and the ones who fought world war ii have an understanding of what freedom is so yeah they're conservative but if you're conservative you want to conserve the first amendment right because the people who want change are trying to change the first amendment and and this is not necessarily a First Amendment thing. It's a it's a idea about the philosophy of free expression because the difference with the modern movement is it's not so much free speech is bad. They don't. The attack is incredibly nebulous. That you know, I I watch Anita Sarkeesian videos fairly regularly, just trying to figure out what in the world she is trying to say. And there's a number of articles that go through all these examples of things people don't like. Rarely, if ever, do I hear a clear and concise solution. It's, this is bad, this has an effect on our society, This we, we, we can't pretend we live in a vacuum, so all these things really need to change, we need a paradigm shift, but never do I hear a concrete, I mean, I shouldn't say never, because maybe I haven't, I haven't encountered it yet, but I, I, I can't think of a concrete actual plan to make these changes occur it just seems to be what is the in vogue offensive criteria right now and then we freak out that i think is the key difference i absolutely agree that there is no well because there's no it's not based on any one thing you could at least say that the conservative right especially the religious right were at least basing these on codified morals Right. Whereas this is very reactionary. It's kind mm -hmm. of like that. I believe it was a Texas judge that said he didn't need to define porn because he knew it when he saw it. Oh, that was the Supreme Court. Oh, there you go. That was um, the Supreme Court. It's, it's kind of exactly the same thing. I, I will know I'm triggered when I'm triggered. Okay, well, right, right. that's fantastic. But the rest of us cannot read your mind. Yeah. Um, and nor should we have to. I mean, and here's the thing that for me, the big problem, and I, I will come right back to it. 
the branch that we've we've come out on. But for me, it's the sacrifice of the group at the ex- or the ex- at the expense of the group. We are catering to the individual, but every individual has slightly different tastes. And in a nation of almost 300 million people, how in the world are we going to cater to every single person's individual taste? We cannot. We cannot. No, not as a society and certainly not as a government. No, you certainly can't. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I kind of advocate for a much more hands-off approach on just ideas and speech in general. So, you know, we'll, we'll, let's just get into a couple of examples. I, I'm a big fan of these really kind of bizarre science fiction uh, fantasy comic books like from Humanoids, Metabarons, and InCal, and and even the more like, you know, salacious stuff like the Druna series. They're not for everyone, and I don't suggest they should be for everybody. But I, I don't think that people should censor them because they're not for everybody. I don't turn around and say, well, something in this comic book bothers me, and therefore it needs to go away. I, I think that's that's the way we should comport ourselves is, you know, you like what you like, I like what I like, and let's move on. The, the difference is that you have a group of people, and in, in specifically in, in the geek community, who see things they don't like, and keep in mind who their primary targets are. It's Marvel and DC, right, comics that I don't necessarily read. That's their primary target because that's the most uh, successful. That's the biggest share of the market. So they have points of view that they want to see reflected in Marvel and DC comics. They don't give a crap about what's seen in heavy metal or humanoids or even Vertigo, for that matter. They care about the big ones because I think, and this might be a stretch, but I think they have personal political agendas that they want to push and they want to use victimhood and mob mentalities and, and in some case, moralizing language to get their opinions out there. I would... I wouldn't narrow it too much simply for the fact that Image Comics, Dark Horse, and even some of the smaller guys, the small press comics, mm-hmm. there may be some outcry against their comics, but they simply don't have enough of the market to care too much. If if their market is you, yeah, you're not yeah. going anywhere. It doesn't yeah. matter how many... you know, and, and I'm again, I'm steering typing a little bit, but it doesn't matter how many 17-year-old girls are on Twitter... And it doesn't matter how many white knight guys are on Tumblr. They just don't care because their market isn't affected. That's not their right. market. But right. Marvel and DC are trying to gain a larger foothold in, you know, at, as a whole. So yeah. it, it, it makes much more sense. And you'll also see the fallout from these um, screaming matches, if you will, sure. with Marvel and DC. Because they are, they're trying to actually win some favor. So... I, I wouldn't say that the other guys aren't getting it. I'm just saying that they're not responding. Yeah. Was there a question? Oh, no. I, that, I was just commenting on the fact that, yes, we oh, see I'm, a lot yeah, more I'm with Marvel s- and DC, but I don't know that that's necessarily... I don't, I don't know that your answer, your answer to that was across the board. I think that to some extent, the smaller guys don't have to worry so much about their audience going anywhere, and therefore they sure. just simply don't have the same response. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good clarification. And that's a good point. I'm certain that if you put some of the books in front that I read in front of the people who write at the Mary Sue, for example, they will find <laughs> just as many problems with it. They'll probably but, die of heart attacks. Yeah, but I don't think they give a crap. I think they, they're sharp enough to know that if they complain about Druna or complain about Manara's erotic, you know, implicit, explicit erotic work or complain about oh, what a... Dark Horse's Conan the Barbarian or Northlanders, as I as I lean over to look at what's on my shelf right now, they're not going to get traction. When you complain about stuff like Batgirl and Spider Woman and Mystique, for example, then you get clicks, you get traction. But the main problem still persists: is what is their solution? Their solution seems to be, or appears to be, to me, complaining about it and then getting a cover or a billboard or a panel or a storyline dropped and then they claim victory. Well, here's a it's, here's a here's a spin-off question then. Do you think they actually yeah. care about victory? Do they care that these things are removed from the public perception or do they only want clicks on their website? 
because uh, you're right. La- Everyone knows Mystique's name. She's been in how many X-Men movies at this point? So even if you're just a casual fan, click. Yes, I think the the latter two that you mentioned are what's important. I don't know if they actually have an end goal in mind or even can articulate an end goal in mind. And it's very difficult. I kind of wish we could find someone for this topic who has an opposing opinion to mine. Uh, the people who I have engaged on this topic tend to run for the hills and block me on Facebook. So <laughs> I, I, I really, and I don't mean this to sound like I know what I'm talking about because 90% of the time I don't. And, but I would really like to hear their opinions on this. When it comes to these kind of social movements, what's the end goal? What does victory look like? And how do you expect to achieve it without stomping on the great creativity and the rights of people to produce art and consume art? That's really where I'm trying to figure out what the problem is. Because again, let's just take a couple examples. I don't really know what they're trying to say. So if if you don't mind, I'm going to jump. Let's just jump right to what happened uh, in 2014 with... Uh, I think it's Milo Manora. I don't know how I can pronounce, if I'm pronouncing the guy's name right. But he had a cover, I think it was a variant cover of Spider-Woman that showed, I mean, basically it looked like she was in body paint and she was on her, basically it looked like, it, uh, for those who can't see it, and we'll link to it, I'll, I'm certain. Uh, she was in what we could best described as doggy style position on the edge of a building. She looks and, like a female baboon who's in heat. Right. And I'm not kidding. That's exactly what she looks like. Yeah. So this was something that caused a lot of problems. And the idea was, well, this is inappropriate. This is awful. This is bad. This needs to go away because it's awful and inappropriate and it's bad. I mean, I'm trying. I'm looking at this from from Slate by Amanda Marcotte, who is a fairly well-known um feminist who i mean at least in the article i'm looking at she says i pers- uh, i personally am struggling with deeply mixed feelings about this no uh, on one hand butts are awesome and shake them is a good is a good time for the shakers and any consenting shakies in the mix but unless unless they are robin thick on the other hand all this staring at heinies raises some age-old questions about sexual objectification of women when is it kosher for ladies to shake their healthy butts? Perhaps two new tr- uh, thrust centric pop culture moments for this week can help us. And she goes on to talk about Manorous Spider Woman. And he call, she basically says Nicki Minaj's Anaconda is a good butt video. And uh, Manorous or Manera's Spider Woman is bad. And she goes on to say it looks more like a colonoscopy than a costume I don't know how that works plus even if you have superpowers it's impossible to crawl along the roof while looking while keeping your back arched and your rear high too many covers like that and Spider-Woman is going to need physical therapy so, again it's it's just weird it's a it's this nebulous weird condemnation of it it's not realistic but it's still bad so well here here's here's what i look at it and and this is as a girl and so first of all you should know and our audience should know too that i'm very torn on some things like this Mm -hmm. so i see censorship as an intrinsically bad thing the limitation of someone else's speech that does not mean that i don't sometimes think someone else's speech is abhorrent so there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a very deep, and, and I think that you kind of feel this way too to some extent, there's a very big difference to me between disliking something and even feeling very strong disgust at something and also wanting to limit that person's right, that person's liberty to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. so I look at this cover and I think, number one, this is bad art. I'm so sorry if the artist is listening to our podcast. I highly I doubt highly it, but doubt. you never know. Um, I just think this is very ugly. It's just not, I mean, the lines are not crisp and clean. It's a little bit strange. It kind of looks a little amateurish. I can't stand, the author that you just cited is absolutely correct. You can, if you're actually trying to be stealthy and or fight someone, this is not the pose to do it. Now, if this cover were, say, Druna, and she were actually crawling 
across a, let's say, large bed towards a paramour, this would be a fantastic posture. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And I have no problems with that. I would probably flip the cover over when I was in the comic book shop just in case a five-year-old walked by. But, mm -hmm. you know, this... So this is bad art. And I don't like it. I think it's mm -hmm. ugly. I think it's gross. I think it's a little bit slutty. And I don't... I, I would never buy this. But that doesn't mean that I think that someone else should not be allowed to. Right. Because then I would be the person behind you when you put it back on the stand and I would buy it. <laughs> Because I, I think Manara is great. And that's the point, right? Is you don't buy it, but and you make your vote with your wallet and I make my vote with mine. I love Manara. I think I think he does a lot of really cool stuff and I and I dig his his style and knowing a little bit about him, I, I know why he chooses the, the artistic choices he makes. But that's that, that's just one example. Now the other one that uh, from twenty fifteen was the back row forty one by uh, I think it's Raphael Abercurky and it's the kind of the, it's the image where he's got his arm draped over her with a gun pointing down and his he's pointing his finger into her cheek and she's got this smile and there was a great big hubbub over that and that caused the change the cover the hashtag change the cover or cancel the cover outrage where the image was released six months before the book was scheduled to come out and this, we need to point out, as we have before when we've talked about this cover, that this was a variant cover. This was never well, intended them, to be the main yeah. cover. Both of um, them were variant covers, but I and, don't think that actually has any bearing on this, in my opinion. Well, I, I think it, to some extent it had the bearing in that many of the mob that were decrying this cover didn't realize that it was a variant. I think that would change a little their opinion a little bit, but many... Again, and this is my opinion just from having... And I was much more involved in this cover of The Killing Joke than I was with the the Spider-Woman. And I don't think that the cry for censorship was as strong with the Spider-Woman cover. But with this one, with the picture of Gar Barbara Gordon and the and Joker, I, I, I actually followed this and I was horrified by the mm -hmm. comments that were made. But it seemed as though most of the people that were decrying it didn't actually understand. They had just picked up the hashtag, saw the cover, didn't like the cover, and responded without even knowing what a variant cover is, what that means in the comic book world. That, you know, there's a much more limited release, and it's only for people who specifically want it, or collectors, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of came across as though most of the people that were mad about this aren't comic book fans and wouldn't have bought it anyway. Right. So I think that factors into the argument. So I'm sorry. Does, go ahead. It does. I see. I I do see your point, and and we have to separate the, the the discussion. So you and I could have a a aesthetic discussion about Raphael Albuquerque or Manara or any other one of these artists, and we could just weigh the pros and cons of how you feel about art. Right. That's one thing. You know. My main concern is to kind of separate those two arguments to is it wise and good to create a cyber mob that before a book is even released, as fans demand that the cover be changed? And I think to me, that's the real fight. That's the real argument. And that was something I didn't see really fought out. The argument was more along the lines of what you were saying. Well, you know, there's artistic merit to it, but it's also a variant cover, but it's also a, a comic book for young girls, blah, 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 blah. And I, I think that's a separate podcast. I think that's a discussion for another time. My main issue was, and I, and I wish people wouldn't get so distracted from that saying you are, but saying that a group of people set, uh, coming out, creating a hashtag, pressuring DC into changing the cover before the damn thing even hits the stands. For our previous example is you pick up the Spider-Woman cover and go, look at Manara's work, Ugh, put it back down, I come up behind you and I buy it. That way, I'm okay with that. In in this scenario, you never get a chance to pick up the comic book and look at it and go, Ugh. You, you never even are allowed that that privilege. And what well, I'm saying is you should allow the market to to work its work its way out. But this is something, and I'm going to revisit this at the very end when I'm going to ask you what you think yeah. we can do to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. But how does a company know whether or not publicity is going to damage their brand or not? How? And here's the hard part. So we can say all day that the fans and other random people need to stop picking up these uh, 
mm-hmm. these mobs, you know, and it, it just becomes so ugly. I, I'm thinking of the Joss Whedon, the response to Joss Whedon after the, I think it was Avengers 2 came out when yeah. Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow refers to herself as a monster mm-hmm. because she's been, uh, well, she's been neutered, really. So, um, Spade, I think, is the second term. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe not the best way, but, um, so she's been turned into a weapon essentially. Right. And in the context of the scene, it it made perfect sense to me. I didn't have any response to it whatsoever, other than I was just following the plot line. Um, I thought it was was actually one of my favorite scenes in that fairly underwhelming film, but I I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, but a lot of people sort of picked up this call and started screaming to the point that Joss Whedon, who, you know, is a man very near and dear to my heart as a director Mm -hmm. of many of my favorite media pieces, actually had to leave Twitter, at least for a while. I'm not sure if he's back. I don't think so. I don't know. It was, and I was, I was reading through it. And again, this is one where I actually paid attention, which is not often. And I've mostly abandoned my Twitter, unfortunately, because it's just so loud and so, there's so many people coming in from all di- different directions. But if you read through, you can tell the moment at which this mob switched from a few older people who maybe had had traumatic experiences and were reacting violently because of that. They were projecting perhaps on this movie and on this director to when mm-hmm. it became 11 year olds bandwagoning because it was something fun to do that day. I mean, it could be both. How does a, I, how does a company, though, here's my question, how does a company look at Twitter and say, we have to pull this cover or this movie or whatever, because even if these people yelling are not our fans, it may damage our actual brand, and then our fans don't want to buy this. How do you tell? Yeah, but I, I think... Or do you just put everything out there and hope someone buys it eventually? You can't do that forever. I mean, there's only limited resources well, for development. No, certainly that's true. I mean, I'm I'm not a big company, so I I always follow the the Ed Sullivan approach to publicity. Is you know, doesn't matter what they say about you, just make sure they spell your name right in the newspaper. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, what Marvel and DC want to do is they have an image and a brand they want to protect and market themselves as, and if they get bad press, for instance, you know. I, I think it's fairly obvious that these two particular companies are really working very hard to expand the market for women and girls and get their money. Yes. I yes. think that's obvious. I don't think I'm making a stretch when I say that. So the problem is when you do that and you have people like the Mary Sue or Amanda Marcotte or whoever it is, and they're, I think these people have fairly strong and, and, and clearly defined political agendas come out and create these mobs basically saying without saying it that Marvel and DC are clueless when it comes to marketing to women they don't know what they're doing and they're actually harmful I think that hurts their bottom line you know that that that's what they're most worried about is they're trying to expand and make money whereas a smaller press who are focused on maybe doing more experimental really strange stuff that you know if they make an attack on them it just they're, they're going to go, oh, great, people actually know we exist. You know, we, <laughs> they, they, they will be excited about it. So I, I think that's why they're doing it, is they really don't want to be seen as a, a company that that is counterproductive in their goals. So part of the, the problem with the Raphael Albuquerque cover was that People were excited that this was, I won't call it a children's story, but it was it was directed more towards like teen girls. And they were, people were mad that this is not something appropriate for teen girls. Now we can argue that point, but if you've got a loud mob of parents and activists saying that this is not appropriate for teen girls and I won't let my teen girl buy it, then the whole point of publishing that damn comic was to get teen girls to buy it, you're in trouble. Yep. So maybe that's that's why they're reacting to it. But we don't know if that was true or not. Teen girls might not have given a crap about this variant cover. Teen girls might have gone, wow, that's a badass cover. What happens in this story? I'm not going to pretend to be a mind reader in this case. I can only speculate. I'm thinking that I probably would have never seen that variant cover if it were not for the hoopla. I don't typically look for variant covers. In fact, the opposite is true because I read my comics. I don't collect them per se. So I'm not looking for the variant cover. I'll, in fact, I'll leave it on the stand for the person who is looking for the variant cover. I just go with the main one. Sure, I'm 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 not a big 
collect. I, I just get the graphic novels or trade paperbacks. I really have very, very few single issues. Let's move on to the billboard. Um, this is much, much more recent and much more interesting to me because the other ones are obvious censorship and it's it's very clear these are a little bit older examples so the line has already been drawn let's talk about um an x-men apocalypse billboard in which it says may 27th which is the of course the release date only this strong will survive is the tagline and it's a picture of apocalypse strangling mystique jennifer lawrence is of course is playing mystique and rose mcgowan apparently uh, the headline is Rose McGowan calls out X-Men billboard that shows Mystique being strangled. This is mm-hmm. in the Hollywood Reporter. We'll throw it in the show notes. And essentially what Rose's argument is, is that casual violence against women is bad. It should not be used to sell films. And there was absolutely no connotation and no context given in the billboard. It was simply a picture of a woman being strangled. And that is what makes it bad. And that billboard should be pulled down. So what do you right. think on this? Well, I feel like I'm not the person to talk to about this particular topic because if you do listen to the podcast, I think you'll remember just a few episodes ago when we talked about Civil War with Becky, I had brought up my feeling that it was fairly noticeable to me that the physical violence against the female superheroes in Marvel Civil War, uh, Captain America Civil War, was slightly toned down in that none of them were receiving a closed-fisted punch. And yet, all the male characters were getting throttled, right? I mean, they were being crippled and bruised, black-eyed, and, I mean, dismembered. It was, and I, I'm not saying this was bad, I appreciated that. But I found it kind of strange that the, the female cast members were slightly let off the hook. And the only violence enacted against them was being choked. And I went, well, that's kind of, that must be their way of getting around it. Well, it's a different studio. Remember that that movie was Marvel, Correct. And this this is Fox Studios. Correct. So. That's true. So then comes this billboard with a character being choked. And I went, okay, this is your standard. This is how you fight female superheroes. You choke them. And Rose McGowan freaks out about it. So, again, we can argue the artistic merit of this ad and, and what it's set out to do. In this case, I don't know if this is, a, this is original to Rose. She may have gotten this from somewhere else. But, again, her complaint is that... We see this normalizes violence against women. Therefore, it is bad. Therefore, it needs to come down. Well, the problem is she's making a truth claim here. You've got to show that this does, in fact, normalize violence against women and make it okay. I, I don't I don't think the evidence bears her out. And unfortunately, if, I think if you scroll down a little bit, uh, you see a, a quote from a woman named Jennifer McCleary Stills. A director of gender violence and rights for the International Center for the Research on Women. And she says, I do see it as problematic, uh, quoting her. She continues to say, I understand that some might not see it as an issue because it's a film about violence with male and female characters who are warriors and fighting each other as equals. But uh, she does, in fact, see it as a problem, yet she doesn't see it as a problem. This, is, this was that nebulous language I talked about earlier is I'm not really sure what what they're trying to get at other than it needs to go away. Well, here's, and I was actually going to throw that same quote at you because it seems to have an argument to your point. Um, And so she goes on to say, here's the thing, where do we draw the line? There are no silver bullets. I'm glad that a bit of a stink has been raised about this and that people are being provoked to think about why this image isn't okay and why the studio could have done better. Now, this is slightly less censorious, I guess, Mm. than than calling for the billboard to be taken down. It's simply, we're also trying to make you think a little bit, which I prefer. Mm -hmm. But coming from a background of religious right and having lived through the Dungeons and Dragons censorship era and the era of censorship in music and having... Uh, a com- living in a community that advocated for those things, I see what where this line of thinking came from because that's that's the exact line of thinking that was used back then. And it was, where do we draw the line? So if the line is at a certain level, the best thing to do would be to avoid it as much as possible. So our standard should actually be way higher just so we never approach the line. We never even worry about crossing it because even if our own standards are compromised, we won't even be near the line that actually is in the sand. 
And yeah. I think that's what they're trying to do here. Now, yes. I mean, that, that's a really good point. And again, it just goes back to this. It's so nebulous and strange. And it's eventually Fox issued a, uh, a statement apologizing and said they would take the banner down. Now, here's here's let's get to the thrust of this, because maybe we'll get off the censorship for a second. But there was someone who said uh, images of violence against women are pretty common in the X-Men universe which is a pretty violent universe. Okay, it's an action movie. That was me editorializing. But they go on to say, the problem is taking one image out of context and having it be an image that is not fantastical in nature, setting aside that Apocalypse and Mystique look like Smurfs. Like, that's a big aside, but never nevertheless. It's just an image of a big guy choking a smaller woman. I have racked my brains trying to come up with an example of marketing image like this that featured two men, and I've come up completely empty. Uh, that was a gentleman named uh, Devin Farasi. Has this person not seen any of the marketing for Batman versus Superman? Yeah, or I don't know. Before? Because well, both you know of what? those movies just came out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I would actually go further back. There is a one of my favorite movies is called The Great Silence. It's a it is an Italian spaghetti western, not very famous. It is notorious for its incredibly bleak outlook on life, but the cover of the poster or the cover of the dvd in the poster is a guy in a horse dragging behind him another man who is got a noose around his neck right it's a very stark troubling image yet yet no one i don't get i don't know if anyone's getting bent out of shape for that you know, there are there are numerous posters and images and billboards of violent images for action movies that set the tone the you you really have to make the argument and, and set up the evidence that this has a negative effect on society, which and they no precedent don't. in in which the two people are gender equals, right? Which, which absolutely is just simply not the case. And and I absolutely agree with that. It's selective blindness, perhaps selective de deafness, that seems to be the meat of these arguments. And I think that it's just, it, it argues into nothingness. These people are shouting down an empty tunnel and it's unfortunate that the echoes make it sound as though there's a lot more of them. Yeah. And, and I mean, let's go back to the, just the image itself. The whole point obviously is to be evocative and stark and striking. That's kind of the point. So you go, Oh my God, what is this, this movie? You people can go oh, look at it and go, okay, I don't want to see this movie because I don't want to see that image. Other people are looking at it and they go, oh, my God, well, this this is crazy. It's like a big blue dude choking a blue chick. What kind of movie is this? I'm going to go find out. And they'll ch I, I have a hard right. time believing no one knows what X-Men Apocalypse is. Like, I really that that part at least is, Mystique. I mean, she's been front and center on the last like five of the X-Men movies and she's been in all of them. So, yeah. Yeah. So I don't I that that kind of blows me. But again, what do they expect to happen? Are they literally trying to suggest, and I don't think they are, but I feel like they're sneaking in underneath us, is people will see that image and go, you know what? Choking a girl is an okay thing to do. You know how I know that? I saw a blue dude do it when I was driving down the 405. I don't, it just, <laughs> uh, when, you, when you really, when you really think about it, it's ridiculous. I think, I think, and this is my personal opinion, this is as true as I can be on this podcast, is that I think they look for an apology. I think that is the end of their quest. They want to push until they get a response from the company saying that they apologize. And for them, that's the end of it. Whether that company goes ahead and does it again, they don't actually care. They'll just ask for an apology mm -hmm. back when whenever that happens again. I think they want the validation of a response because it makes them it validates their questions and concerns and complaints and their feelings. Their feelings are validated. And that for them uh, is the ultimate prize. I mean, it's certainly that certainly could be the case because you've got these people who, again, have an Amanda Marcotte type and an Anita Sarkeesian type and maybe even this other guy, uh, Devin Farassi, have a brand and an image and a, and a reputation they want to keep. So they're going to do these things. And it's a form of signaling to their constituents that this is what I, this is who I am. This is what I do. Look how good of a person I am. I'm complaining about X-Men apocalypse because I don't like seeing women being choked be out of context, right? Because that's just, you can't do that. And on the other hand, I think Fox doesn't give a crap because they go, look, people are talking about our movie. 
So well, God I, knows they everyone, need that to happen. Right. But I, the more pernicious problem is people thinking it's okay to complain and get things taken down. I, that's just where I have, I have a big problem with that. And the other pernicious problem I see is that they don't actually offer evidence for why this is actually bad. They don't really show any direct harm coming from the the poster. They just say, oh, it's tone deaf. Okay, so what? Right. I, I, I get, but people I, again, actually I respond to them. So, I mean, the, the word tone deaf has been used, overused to the point that it doesn't mean anything anymore. But... As long as as long as these companies continue to respond, and that takes me to my final question for you. But as long as these companies continue to respond, what more can these people ask for? Oh, well, this is this is my rule on this: it is not to apologize ever. Right? Don't. Sounds don't like you and Trump down. have something in common. Oh. In the, at least on this particular. So a good example of this, not in the geek world, and we may have mentioned this. I don't know if we have in a previous podcast, but. There was a billboard in London from a company called, oh, what was it called? Protein World. And they had an image of a woman in a bikini, a model in a bikini, just this one of these women who have these bodies just go, Ugh. Yeah. And, and it says, are you beach body ready? Right. And this is like one of these motivational ads of, you know, go buy our product, get fit, get in a bikini and look this good. Right. That's it's, it's fairly standard. And it caused a big stink, I think, last year uh, with, and again, I, I hate having to beat up on feminists on this particular topic, but, but it just seems like they're the ones doing it the most. Uh, for whatever reason, the religious right have just kind of taken a back seat to them. And they're, they're complaining, everybody is beach body, blah, blah, this is all my body. Are you saying I can't go to the beach? Is this the and then they, acceptance movement? Something like that. And, and it was people sending Twitter messages to Protein World, you guys suck. You guys are terrible. You make you make people feel bad about their body. And Protein's world's response was grow up and sending back little emojis with a flexed arm with bulging <laughs> muscles and and do you need a shoulder to cry on? Like they fought they fought them back and said suck it. And it they got a huge return on investment on that on that billboard. So I, I am of the opinion that if these companies really want to make money or really want to get some adulation and, and some good and some good press, is to not apologize and to not back down. I think we're. I, I think, think the of, tide is turning, and we're getting to the point where that is appreciated. And, I think and so no too. Small, in no small thanks to Trump. I I don't like the man, but I, I'm happy about this one small thing. Yeah, I, I think he's more a symptom of a larger group of a larger collective consciousness on this topic. If, I think people are tired of being told what to say, what they can't say, and if they say something fairly benign just because the most sensitive in the person in the, the most sensitive person in the room thinks they're saying something mean, that means they have to apologize. I think people are tired of apologizing when they don't feel like they have to. That's absolutely and and I th this this has led to people in the public sphere becoming avatars for this. And yeah, Trump is part of it. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos is part of it. Uh, for, for some period of time, not lately, uh, it seems, but for a while, Ann Coulter was part of it. Bill Maher is part of it. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. left and right. Uh, so, you know, Jon Stewart was kind of part of it yeah. for a while. And, yeah. and, and now, yeah, maybe the tide is turning, but I still think we're, we're in for another couple years of, of fighting this one out. And the thing with people who have these censorious impulses is they will mutate their arguments over and over and over again until they until one of them works. I don't think they do, but they cer they certainly throw wrenches in the gears of the creative culture that makes us stop and think. And I think that's really bad. If you have to sit there and when you, and you're an artist and you have to draw something or you want to draw something and you have to sit there and think, "Oh, is this going to get me in trouble?" That that's that's when you know they've won. That it's that's a, yeah. Know, it's a sad state a of affairs. Yeah. Sure. Okay, like, so here's instance, my here's my last question for you because we're getting high on time here or low on time. How do we put a stop to the bottom up censorship? And I add to that, I qualify that in that obviously there's a legal judicial recourse for top down censorship, which fortunately mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of courts and there are a lot of attorneys just waiting to take on these cases. So yeah. not 
the least of whom is CBLDF, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, who has done a phenomenal job at protecting Fifth, fifth Amendment rights for comic creators. But First, I think. First Amendments. I'm so sorry. Yes, First Amendment. Um, but at the same time, of course, we don't want to incriminate ourselves. So so how do, how do there is no legal re- recourse for this bottom-up censorship. No. What do you suggest? No, no, no. So yeah, the, the top-down censorship is pretty easy to beat because, again, you've got the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, who focuses mainly on, on comics. You've got FIRE, the Freedom for Individual Rights in Education, who does a lot of free speech and due process stuff for colleges where most of these battles are going on. And they're doing a lot of good work. And you've got groups like the, the traditional ACLU who have been fighting this. So they're always there, right? To fight the bottom-up stuff, you have to do it from the bottom itself. You have to go to the bottom. And to do that, I think it would behoove everyone who cares about art and comics and the, you know, the popular culture and the media to educate themselves on these topics. If we really enjoy reading comic books and young adult novels... You know, take a couple hours out of your day and and really sit down and read some of the thoughtful but not too dense, uh, you know, treatises on free expression and and the exchange of ideas. I think the first book I would suggest everyone read is a book from about 20 years ago called uh, Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rauch. It's the most approachable and digestible on this topic and he goes it doesn't talk about comic books specifically the book is mainly about or in a response to the uh satanic verses kerfuffle that happened in the late 80s but nevertheless it's it's a response to to a form of of expression and he writes this book in a very clear concise and lays out his arguments very well and i think if you are armed with the and there's a whole bunch of other books out there you could read but that's i'm just going to go with that one to start and if you educate yourself on this topic, and, and at least you don't have to be a professor on it or a PhD, but at least understand the basic ideas and discuss it amongst your friends who have these kind of censorious impulses, I think that will do a lot. I think artists also need to come out. Some of them did. Frank Cho did a parody of the Manora Spider Woman cover and, and basically said, you know, you guys are a bunch of dopes. Shut up. You know, yep. it's not backing down. Yep. So, you know, educate yourself. Continue to push the boundaries. Be provocative. I've always said, you know, you can only be deliberately provocative. If you are accidentally provocative, you're probably an idiot. And then not apologize. You know, say, no, this is my this is my point of view. You can argue with it, but I'm not going to back down. And I think those three things, just coming up with them all the top of my head, will do a lot to push it back. And, and if so long as there's a critical mass of people who just defend people's right to express bizarre, weird images and opinions. I think the people who want to fight them, I think they could, they just lose by, by mass. Well, and I would add to that this one thing that those people who are in the um, so-called marginalized group, especially women who do not want censorship to happen, they need to be more vocal because right now what we're hearing is a minority of aggressive um, third wave folks who are more interested in hearing their own voices. Um, but we need to hear from those people who don't want this to occur. And I think that that's a voice that's fairly silent right now. Yeah. The, and the thing is, there's so few of them. The only one, I mean, the, the, the biggest one that I can think of is Camille Pelia. If you look her up, she is on the front lines of this and she's so verbose on this topic and she's so entertaining on this topic. She was someone who loves the arts. She's got a great book that I just recently bought called uh, Glittering Images on the History of Art. She is just great on this. So I would, you know, if you like her, just share every YouTube video of her on this topic. It's great. There's another one called Christina Hoff Summers who's a little more calm than, than Camille Pelia. She covers this topic very well and uh, she's got a YouTube channel, you know, Put, put, put her out there. And there's a girl at Reason. She she touches on this every now and again. Her name is Elizabeth Nolan Brown. But these are names people don't know. You know, yeah. these are not, these, these they don't, for whatever reason, they don't get out there. So I, I just think following people and understanding the arguments, being expressive and not backing down are the most important things. I, I, I mean, I think the last thing I can say on this is, is educate yourself. Uh, 
I think the guy's name is Charles Allen Coors, basically said, a nation that does not educate in liberty will not long endure in liberty and will not even know when it has been lost. And I think that's the best way to sum it up. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks. Of course, if you like what we do, you can like, subscribe, and, of course, leave us uh, reviews. Um, you can find us at thereforeageek.com, where you find um, old podcast episodes and blog posts as well. And you can find this podcast and other ones like it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now new episodes are going up weekly on YouTube. And you can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Once again, I'm Tracy. I'm Dude. And you've been listening to Therefore I Geek. You know what? Even if you don't like what we do, like and subscribe and comment anyway. I don't care. That's absolutely true. And leave us a five-star review. God damn it. Leave a five-star review and say, these guys suck. Five stars. <laughs>